Welcome to episode 35 of the UC Architects, the world's most popular exchange, link, and Office 365 podcast. Recorded on Sunday, March the 9th, 2014, I'm your host, Steve Goodman, Exchange MVP. Coming up on the show today, we've got a packed show this time around, and we'll be talking through what's hot in the Microsoft UC world and, uh, well, what's not so hot right now. But before we begin, here's a quick message from our sponsor. Chem Technologies is the number one price and performance load balancer for Microsoft workloads, and they're a gold-certified Microsoft partner in both messaging and communications. Kemp's load balancer and ADCs come with configuration templates for link and exchange. Kemp's new virtual load balancers are the most powerful on the market and have the same features as their hardware load balancers. For more information and to download a free trial, go to kemptechnologies.com. Anyway, before we begin, let me welcome my co-hosts this week. Dave Stork, John Cook, Michael Van Horenbeek, or Michael Van Hybrid as it's becoming known, uh, Michelle DeRoy, Sirkan Varanglou, and Starley Hansen. Uh, a few of you have just returned from Vegas, so I, I hope those hangovers are, are getting better, or is it uh, jet lag? No, I'm still hungover. And <laughs> <laughs> we got mech in a few weeks, I don't know how I'm going to make it. Yeah, I'm still working on my jet lag. <laughs> yeah, and speaking of mech, mech is going to be epic, by the way. So. Yeah, so uh, yeah, mech, uh, we'll start off with mech, actually, uh, because because uh, obviously it's it's time to get some scheduled downtime. And um, Michael, you've got uh, all the skinny on what's happening uh, in terms of uh, the UC Architects and Enow Party. Yes, yes. So uh, for those who have been to the Link Conference, know that we had our own party um, at that time sponsored by um, Event Zero. And we're doing the same thing again now for Mech. We're having our own party. Uh, and this time it's being sponsored by Enow. And they're throwing the party together with their scheduled maintenance party, which was, by the way, awesome at Lane Conference. So So, um, so what did you get up to at this schedule? Thank you again. What did you get up to at that party then? Well, it was. was. (laughs) At the Lane Conference, we went to the the rooftop bar in the Palms Resort, and you had the nice overview of the the ghost bar, the the Vegas Strip. It was the 56th floor, wasn't it? Yeah, I was was trying to figure out, remember how high it was, but it it was way up there. It was cool, and you know it was an open bar. Um, you know, lots of people. Uh, we had you know great laughs. It was it was, it was a fun evening, and we're looking at you know doing the same thing, but this time uh, we'll all be there as well. You know, all of the UC architects, um, and it's being hosted in the Speakeasy on the Avenue, which is also a rooftop bar in Austin, and it's a bar with a little bit of history. Um, so as far as I've been able to read, it's it's it has to do with you know the the, the times when you couldn't get any alcohol in the United States and that was a, a clandestine thingy but uh, in, either way it's a very cool uh, place to be and um, I can announce that you know anyone who listens to the podcast and wants to join us um, for that party can do so but they need to register on the schedulemymaintenance.com website and use a specific promo code and that will be UC Architects so very important that they register and that they do so by using our promo code 
why is that? Because the, uh, the number of people that can attend is only limited, and um, by entering the promo code, you make a little, you know, a little bit more chance of getting in. So definitely, you know, if you hear this and you want to come, make sure to register in time. Cool. Very good. Uh, so yes, uh, if you make it to Mech, then uh, we'll see you there. Moving on to the top stories this week, uh, uh, the, the biggest one, of course, uh, is, is going to provide most of the material for today's show, and that is on the 25th of Feb. Uh, Exchange 2013 Service Pat 1 was released to a, a bit oh, of a oh, fanfare. Oh. <laughs> yes. Uh, and, and, and lots of happy people with transport problems. <laughs> <laughs> oh, we should. No, we, we shouldn't laugh. It. No, it, it, it's not funny. It's kind of disappointing. But uh, there's, lot, there's lots of good stuff in it. Um, but yes, it, it has been marred yet yeah, again um, by uh, uh, some quality issues. Uh, so, so let, let's talk more about what's in Service Pat One first, because let's start with some of the good stuff, and we're going to cover some of these a little bit more uh, over the show. But uh, what else? What have we got in Service Pat One? Well, let, let's first focus on the on the, the joyful things in Service Pack One. Uh, you know, there the return of the edge transport role. Um, yeah, <laughs> is, that, is that joyful? <laughs> is that joyful? <laughs> that was actually <laughs> that was the second thing I was going to talk about. Who's actually you know uh, excited about that one? Yeah, I deployed it already. Are you so, using it? Yeah. Well, I, yeah. Uh, but now, of course, um, the, you know, chicken and the egg, right? So. Not, the, the help wasn't updated, so I don't know about you guys, but I don't usually you manage my edge server via the shell much. So I was like, okay, um, I don't remember how to do any of this anymore. So I, it was a good learning experience and refresher course because I had to go back in and figure out how to turn anti-spam, you know, all that stuff on and get it working without you know the luxury of, of a GUI anymore. <laughs> so I was like, um, okay. But uh, it's, it's good. I, my, my problem, I find, I was, run, I was running, you know, so I was, I'm replacing a... Um, a dedicated uh, uh, forefront and uh, uh, edge box with 2010, and since there's no forefront anymore, so I'm you know I'm I'm left to the to the, just the built-in anti-spam stuff, which is okay, but it's nowhere near as good as what what I got with forefront. So I well, what I did in, in the meantime was throw up a Trend Micro uh, Interscan uh, appliance <laughs> in front of the edge to cut down some of the spam, but um, I don't know what my permanent solution will be. But so not Exchange Online protection. I, well, I, I I probably will do that. I, I had to break my hybrid to uh, before my master's class, so I have to fix that. Because <laughs> so it's, really it's all destroyed. But it's, it's not feature complete then. It's not got... It, it's not equivalent in any, any sort of way to commercial anti-spam and uh, antivirus solutions on the market then at the moment. It's not... It, they're, they're not trying to lead the market with the edge roll now. You're right. No. I, I, the recipient filtering is the key piece. Um, so what... I would say that, that you know, they offer... So, so, so what, what's the point of the edge roll if they're not trying to make it the best on the market? Well, I mean, yeah, sorry. Uh, I mean, I just you know, it's a very good question because I, I, I don't see it because I have, I've rarely uh, implemented the edge transport roll with 2007 and 2010. You, you mentioned a very important thing there, um, and, and sorry to jump in. Um, it isn't much deployed the edge transport role, and I, I haven't seen it much deployed except in hybrid deployments. Um, because uh, if you take a look at it, there are a lot of companies that, you know, and whether it's it's good or bad, that's that's an entirely different discussion, but that have a requirement that, you know, uh, email uh, flow is being terminated in their uh, parameter network, and being able to put something in there which is supported in a hybrid deployment um, is actually key for some of those customers, and I do believe that's the only reason why they 
put out the you know edge transport role out there um, because for security reasons uh, there are better solutions I I think yeah I, I, I agree I would say for the for the hygiene stuff you know you're better off with a third party solution but again like I said resistant filtering is a key piece I mean other part, products do that but I haven't seen ones that I've liked very much you know. Um, they use, you know, either MySQL, some kind of proprietary store or something to, to do the same kind of thing. So, you know, I just think that, that for that piece, uh, Edge is, is good. Um, and like you said, domain secure and those kind of features, I think, is it's important for that, too. Mm-hmm. But, yeah, I mean, it would be hard for me to say, yeah, you know, your only your only hygiene, you know, perimeter hygiene product would be is, is satisfied by the Edge. I would be probably hard-pressed to say that unless the company, of course, had no money. <laughs> We've got some other good new additions, though. Uh, what, one thing that uh, jumped out at me and I'm really excited about is the uh, uh, Exchange Admin Center commander logging features are back. So, oh, right. So, yeah. so if you're trying to learn a bit about PowerShell and you want to go through and do a step-by-step uh, set of commands, then you can do those uh, <clears> in the EAC, and then you'll be able to see those uh, listed out for you and then try and repeat those <clears> using <throat> PowerShell afterwards. So that's a, a, a great learning tool. And it was a, yeah, well, th- th- there are some uh, definite downsides compared to the uh, option uh, in Exchange 2010, the, the Exchange Management Console. You had uh, first thing you had a, a preview, which isn't present uh, with the command logging because it's always after you have done the the, the command, then then it's registered. And uh, in, in this case, the uh, command logging only works uh, when it's enabled. And it only logs the last 50 uh, or so commandlets. So it's it's still, in my opinion, uh, it's it's definitely an improvement, uh, but um, it, it's still not not com- comparable with Exchange 2010. That was awesome, and I would like to see that feature set back again. But, but yeah. Well, so, so just to remind people, in Exchange 2010, there was two features for commandant logging and that you could do the commandant logging and look at the command logs that Exchange, the Exchange Management Console had done since it was launched or you could go and try and make some changes and then click a little icon in the bottom left hand corner of the properties which would just show you the, the command that it was about to execute and that, that was the best one and it seems like they've, they've, they've really went and done the commandant logging feature that no one really used. Uh, the the sort of secondary one that was in the the AMC more, more for troubleshooting purposes, but it's better than nothing. Uh, so it's, it's oh certainly, yeah, but certainly it's an improvement. One also one downside I think of the current version is that it displays grids for things like mailboxes and uh, databases, so you won't see the names of the uh, mailbox or the database the command that runs the gets but you see the grids and it makes it less readable than you're used to when you're using exchange 2010 uh, the preview command um, yeah we just saw the name and yeah. now you have to sort of look up the entry which was actually uh, changed or manipulated <clears throat> uh, I think that the way I would envisage people using it is if you're trying to do a set of commands that you'll do against one person and then you plan on trying to do that against a, a multitude. So the the user itself isn't isn't so important, um, but it's more important to be able to see the commands that are used. So is it going to be the set hyphen user commandler, the set mail, mailbox commandler, or the set hyphen cas mailbox, or perhaps a combination of those? You'll be able to see that in the parameters, and then uh, do it against users. So the GUID is yeah, it's unhelpful, um, but. Uh, well, you could could have no logging, so 
I guess this is a good good start. But I, I certainly hope they will uh, enhance the the feature set uh, in in the, in the future. Uh, what else have we got? Uh, there's the, the we've talked about Mappy HTTP, which uh, yeah, which I we've talked yes we've talked about that a few shows back because it was made public uh, on MSDN. Uh, so there's some big in detail talks about it. Just 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 to recap, it's it it's a feature that's that's coming soon to your Office 365 users. Uh, if they're on there as well, by the sound of it, and will require random restarts for all the clients, uh, and it has unknown bandwidth app- uh, implications so far, and you probably won't want to switch on internally uh, in your organization at the moment. Uh, but it's the future, and the idea is that it, it makes the the end-to-end process uh, simpler uh, between the client and the server, so it doesn't have to wrap up RPC inside HTTPS and and do all that uh, jiggery pokery. And it should mean that sessions get set up and and resume quicker. So when you open Outlook uh, in the morning, it should start faster. Uh, is is my take from it. Um, but it needs a, a little bit more documentation. Uh, we need to know the bandwidth implications, and we need to have a real selling point for it uh, on premises. I think. Uh, what else have we got? Um, an enhanced text. It, yeah, don't, don't you hate some of the features in service packs where they bring out service pack one and it reintroduces stuff we had for years? So we've got a, a text editor in OWA. Um, they've enhanced it and they made it better. And we've got uh, S mime again and stuff like that. Um, so there's a bunch of features like that where they brought back stuff into Service Pack 1 that uh, they'd taken away when they released Exchange 2013. It's a, it's a good tradition with Exchange Service Pack 1. Yeah, uh, so I don't know whether that's a congratulations or a, why didn't you do it in the first place. I'm not an expert on shipping software, so... <laughs> well, we, st- we still miss um, a, a, a comparable public folder access uh, in OWA yes. uh, compared to uh, previous versions of Exchange. So that, that was one thing I hoped would return because there are still a lot of people that use public folders. Um, right. Well, yeah. Um, so because they are awesome? <laughs> well, I, I, I do have to say that that public folders in Exchange 2013 are, are less um, problematic than previous than legacy public folders in some so, ways. You know, I, I have to agree. From a uh, architecture point of view, they might have been a pain in the royal behind, um, and we, you know, we can all agree to that. But from a end user perspective, they were awesome. You know, it's easy. It, how, how difficult could it be to use public folders? Everyone's got accustomed to them, so I was rather, rather, you know, happy they brought them back, and I would be very happy to see them, you know, be be in OWA again, as they should be. Um, that being said, um, the way they solved, you know, public folders in 2013, and I'm not going to elaborate on that right now. Um, that kind of makes me unhappy because the way from the older public folders to what they call now the modern public folders is a also a royal pain in the behind but you know thanks for reminding me because I have to do that in a few weeks so (laughs) oh you'll have fun yeah yeah but um, um, uh, I think that one of the the most important new features uh, in in search pack 1 is the Windows Server 2012 R2 support and that is one that I'm very happy uh, about absolutely so that's both domain controllers in your organization and how supported, and you can install it onto 2012 R2. Uh, a point of note: you can't upgrade your 2012 box to R2 now, though. So you would need to do a reinstall if you want to move to 2012 R2 from 2012. Oh, you see, you can't do any place on upgrade it on the OS with with Exchange installed. 
Nope. No, no, no. no. I haven't tried it. It, it, it was uh, <laughs> the last time that it was possible with was with Exchange 2000 to 2013. Uh, sorry, 2003. Oh, that's right, right. Yeah. It was the last time that it was possible. So yeah, but that that does mean that if you're deploying 2012 R2 at the moment, then you're good to go, because uh, let, let's face it, it's it feels like a much more complete OS uh, versus 2012, mainly because it's got a start button. Uh, yeah, I know. <laughs> <laughs> and you can right click and hit run. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, but yeah, the little so, things, right? <laughs> yeah, is it, every single lab because I I use uh, RDC man, and you go to click start, and you sort of have to hover in the corner just a little bit until it comes up, uh, because because it's in a window. Uh, but yeah, so that that that's fantastic, and there are some other great stuff. So uh, DLP is something in twenty thirteen that's really really good, and uh, the policy tips uh, now go in Outlook Web App as well. So that's a fantastic new feature. And uh, and it's just came to Office 365 as well. So Office 365 news too, I suppose, uh, is DLP document fingerprinting. So the DLP document fingerprinting is the idea that if you have a special template in your organization that you use for confidential stuff or design document or something like that, and you, you don't want those to incorrectly exit the organization or someone to get a warning before they leave, then the document itself, the type of the document uh, that it is, uh, the template it's based on uh, can can be used uh, as the uh, how do you how do you say it, uh, it can be used as uh, the, the thing to scan for so you can restrict uh, stuff based on certain templates from exiting the organization so I think that's a really powerful feature yeah one thing yes yeah. check me if I'm, I'm wrong on this but one thing I noticed because uh, I was setting up a link integration with UM and I'm looking at my EAC, which is SP1, and then I'm looking at this RTM one. I'm like, where's the unified messaging tab on the server uh, tab? And I'm like, sure, sure, sure. like um, am I missing something? Or what? But it seems to me that that was added uh, in, a, which is in a small thing, but if you're trying to set up a you know the, the link dial plan and you're wondering how to set up the startup mode for the shell, I don't know if that it was there in RTM. <laughs> and all of a sudden, I didn't. I realize like, oh, yeah, it looks like it's SP1 now, so that's kind of a handy little value add. Yeah, so so there's lots of lots of good stuff. Ah, another one that I'm going to mention later, ADFS. So we'll talk about that too because we've got some good links for that. And, and SSL Dan- offload. SSL offloading is something I just wanted to mention very quickly because that's making me just <clears throat> kind of happy. Really? Yeah. Go on. Why? Well, well, um. Okay. Uh, now you put me on the spot. Uh, <laughs> so, so SSL offloading, typically well, in previous versions yeah. of Exchange, was used yeah. to, uh, uh, to to allow you to use a cheaper load balancer, so you wouldn't have to re-encrypt SSL traffic. Um, but with Layer 4 load balancing being recommended somewhat in Exchange, 20, in Exchange 2013, uh, you know, what, what's so special about SSL offloading now? Well, um, I have uh, several customers that have uh, a limited number of external IP addresses, and um, and Michael probably knows this and ha- helped me with it. But I uh, sometimes use Camp uh, content switching or Citrix content switching um, in order to limit the uh, amount of uh, public IP addresses needed. For, for instance, Office Web App Server, uh, for Link Web Services, and, and, and Exchange. And uh, for that, you uh, need 
uh, as a result of learning is, is a benefit, but you can also, uh, uh, until now, I um, had to re-encrypt the traffic again. So you get uh, decryption and re-encryption on your load balancer. Um, and with SSL offloading, that, isn't, that second part, the re-encryption, isn't necessary anymore. So you have the benefit of uh, content switching, which requires that, the uh, load balancer has access to the, 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 uh, the package, so, so it has to uh, de decrypt it. Um, and then it can, with SSL offloading now, uh, doesn't have to re-encrypt it. So uh, this feature makes me uh, kind of happy, uh, especially for uh, customers that have uh, limited uh, public IP addresses um, and um, yeah, want to make uh, good use of all their uh, uh, external access. Uh. And the, the, the one to watch, I think, with... Uh with SSL offloading, uh, it's the same in 2010, but also in 2013, is uh, if you are moving to Office 365, and this is going to be your hybrid server, uh, you can't use SSL offloading when you're moving mailboxes. So one component of that, the MRS right. proxy, still is not supported uh, under Exchange 2013 with SSL offloading. So if you are SSL offloading, bear that in mind. Um, because if at a future date you implement hybrid and expect to do mailbox moves, then you'll need to have an additional IP, uh, perhaps, or, or go back from SSL offloading uh, to, to re-encryption. So, that, you know, sorry to jump in here, but um, I, I, there are some, some thoughts I have on, on the topic of SSL offloading. Uh, first of all, um, you said earlier that kind of for load balancing is recommended. Um, that that kind of hurt because... To me, there are a lot of drawbacks to using Layer 4. Um, so I know they've been pushing that hard, and it, it is a valid option, and we all know that. But, um, you know, in every deployment where there is a little money, and I mean just very little because load balancers are relatively cheap, uh, if you take, for instance, the camp ones, they are really cheap. Um, there's yeah. so much more to, to gain from doing layer 7. Um, and you know, the, the not you know not doing re-encryption and, and thus doing SSL offloading, uh, th there are some benefits, uh, mainly load uh, on your load balancer and even on your exchange servers because they don't want, they don't want, need to decrypt traffic and stuff. But, you know, the, the, the overall percentage of, of, of performance that you gain from, from doing that is doesn't outweigh the configuration that you have um, on, on the exchange side because there's a lot of things that you need to do on exchange side for SSL offloading to make it work so my idea always was and, and feel free to you know um, kind of jump in and, and say that I'm wrong but my idea You're is wrong. just keep things <laughs> thanks um, <laughs> keep things simple and, and leave exchange as default as possible I mean just you know do whatever you <coughs> have to do but leave the SSL offloading uh, to uh, the SSL encryption and, and re-encryption to the to the uh, to the load balancer I know that you know there are companies that are not able to do that because of budget restrictions but you know even no, the smallest I, I, I definitely agree if, you, if you're so small that you that you can't well, if you were that small, then uh, the cheapest load balancer would suffice uh, and be able to yeah. do the SSL re-encryption. Uh, it's, it, it's not really worth doing, and it limits your options in the future. It makes things harder to troubleshoot, and the time that you're going to spend setting it up and messing around with it, uh, that, that money could have bought a slightly yeah. more expensive load balancer. So, yeah, I, I agree. Uh, I think it's a, a waste of time in most scenarios and a pain in the ass to manage. Oh, good point. But yeah, if you if you're that cheap, then go for it. <laughs> <laughs> I, 
No, I, I do think it's, it's like just to save a few quid. You know, it's it's not as if it's going to make a massive difference for to to most budgets. And if it is a, a larger project, then it's probably worth the the extra money because keep things simple. That's the key to to most deployments. Uh, whenever someone goes, but we could do it this way, and then comes up with a special way of doing it, that's the thing that in a couple of years' time always bites them on the ass. In my experience, so keeping things simple, then yeah, I, I and I, I, I kind of see that point with the layer four load balancing as well, because again, that's introducing extra extra complexity with additional namespaces that traditionally I'd try and avoid. Uh, I'd like to have as few names for Exchange as possible, as, as few IP addresses as possible. So, so yeah, so you know, I, I kind of you know see your point as well uh, on not using layer four load balancing where you can. So, have we got anything else good before we? Because uh, I, I, I hate to, well, I hate to bring up the bad stuff, and I want to bring out all, all the the good stuff uh, that's not got a blog post or something like that around it first, so we can tell you about all the good things before we go ahead. Um, well, maybe we should talk one one little brief moment. Uh, we had the 2012 R2 stuff, but we didn't talk about the, you know the the IPless DAGs, which I find pretty I, cool. Yeah, I still have a hard time wrapping my head around <laughs> to be honest. Uh, well, I, at first, me too. But I've been upgrading my, all of my servers uh, in my lab to 2012 R2, and I, you know, reset up my DAG with a IPless DAG, um, and I, I see some value in it. You know, I, I have four uh, IP addresses less to manage, four, um, you know, resources less that can cause issues, and they do cause issues from time to time. So, uh, purely from from that point of view, um, there is a huge value, at least to me, there is one. Uh, however. I did have some, you know, issues in the beginning uh, because I used to use the, you know, failover clustering tool sometimes to, you know, dive into my DAG and see what's happening. I'm not able to do that anymore, so now it's it's kind of need to find a way around that, and um, so it's 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 different. But uh, yeah, you know, having four IPs less, uh, even you know, it's a, it's a lab I know, but you know, it gives me a certain piece um, which I didn't have before. So I don't know if you guys played around with it. Oh, I haven't looked at it yet. So, so the kind of reasons why you might want to use the failover cluster cluster manager, the only times that I've really uh, found a, a real need to want to open it and have a look, apart from being inquisitive, is with things like uh, site failovers, where you just want to double-check that something has definitely been evicted from a DAG and stuff like that, uh, which, again, you can see in event logs. But uh, apart from that, no other, no, no other good reasons to go in there. No, sure, uh, and I agree. In in a day-to-day -day management, there there isn't. Um, so it, it's not big of an issue, but it's it's just something I came across uh, because you know obviously not having an IP address and and not having the cluster object which you can manage. There's nothing to connect to. Exactly. Um, so it's it's it's, it's kind of different, and and it shouldn't be a problem for 98% or even 99% uh, of no, the people I, out there. I think it's definitely a good um, thing. There's blog posts. Yeah. There's random blog posts on the internet where people say that you should go in and change a bunch of settings using the failover cluster manager. And I've had customers say, well, I've seen this blog post. It says we should have done all this stuff on the cluster, uh, which they shouldn't have done. They shouldn't have been messing with, and they shouldn't have went and set all that stuff. Um, but yet, uh, there's the stuff on the internet that says to do it. Having this, as, uh, having this as part of the setup stops people from accidentally breaking things as well by reading bad advice on the internet. Absolutely agree. Internet is always right. 
<laughs> well, it depends, doesn't it? I, I yeah. mean, you get some, you get some rubbish, and and uh, even some vendors. Uh, uh, who was it? It was uh, Bit Titan. Uh, their support people uh, sent me a link to the most random blog of you should look at this. And we're still in an age where people can send rubbish links to to customers back and forward. Uh, so yeah, like anything, you have to be careful what you read. Uh, stuff you hear on this show might not be right. Uh, we're just as bad as anybody else from time to time. Usually someone will tell us though, if we get it wrong. Uh, right. <laughs> you might be, you might be. <laughs> uh, so, so yeah, IP list DAGs and that, that's a, there's, there's a link we're going to put up, uh, from Scott Snoll, uh, about this, which, um, you'll see in the links to stuff on the show today. Uh, so yeah, we, we briefly touched on the transport bug, uh, that's been found in exchange 2013 service pack one. And if you're about to upgrade, then it's, it's one to know about. Um, and and it, it it's kind of a kind of a pain in the bum one really isn't it uh, yeah um it, it, it's painful you know um you've been talking about quality issues and i was really really looking forward to service pack one um you know for one because they've worked hard on it and it's been it's been anticipated for a long time and then you know just as we were in the process of upgrading to service back one um and i know we were early uh, maybe we should have waited but then again you know i was eager i was like hey it's there and we need to install this to solve all sorts of other issues um and then you know just as i installed the last server uh, we kind of saw there was something off with the, the first servers uh, the transport service didn't start and then it was, reports started coming in like hey you know there is something wrong with the transport and uh uh, luckily, it got solved quite quickly. Uh, I think, you know, uh, when, when was it? The week after? Two, two, three days after Microsoft came out with that KB article, which is famous by now. Um, yeah, so this uh, is KB article 2938053. Third-party transport agents cannot be loaded correctly in Exchange Server 2013. Yep, 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 yep. Uh, so in our case, that was actually a signature tool, which you know uh, didn't start. But if it doesn't start, mail doesn't flow. So we didn't have any mail flow. So two solutions: uh, either you know disable the transport agent, but that kind of doesn't make the marketing people happy because we don't have a signature anymore, uh, or no mail flow. So I, I know what to do. Uh, that's that's for sure. Um, but it's it, it could be painful. You know, there are a bunch of other tools. I think. Uh, um, uh, Dave, you talked about your antivirus was causing issues, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, Essence, I think it was, was a colleague of mine, uh, and it was this, the, the same situation that the transport uh, server uh, didn't want to start, uh, no mail flow uh, or anything, and uh, it was only resolved by uh, deinstalling the antivirus product from the Exchange servers, and then it just worked fine. Well, and, and that's, you know, not having signatures, that's one thing, but not having any antivirus, if that's the only one that you rely on, eh, kind of is a little bit more of an issue to me. Yeah. Um, so even though it's a, it seems a very small bug, it has a huge impact, and that kind of, you know, threw me off on the service pack one deal. So, yeah, so MVPs, uh, TAP participants, MCMs, MCAs alike have been testing it. So it's a, a pity it wasn't caught. So one might suspect that it was a fairly late uh, bug in the process. Uh, so could it be avoided? Perhaps. Um, but uh, there's, there, there's a lot of other bugs that, that we, we believe were caught along the way. So it's disappointing. 
but uh, it's it's small in comparison to some of the other bugs that uh, we've had in previous service packs. Uh, am I sounding like I'm a, an apologist now, perhaps? Well, no, yes, no, yeah, no, well, no. not yeah. Well, the 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 bug is easily fixed, and it was uh, quickly fixed. Um, but the the problem is is that uh, with the history of all the uh, roll-up updates that had had to be re- uh, revoked and uh, reissued. And then, um, well, this just doesn't uh, come at a good time for for a important update uh, like Search Pack One, especially uh, because it, 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 even though it's a cumulative update technically from a technical uh, viewpoint, but it's also a, a support a supportability point. Um, so. The the the, technic, the technical impact is 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 uh, uh, beside from the mill flow that totally breaks down. But uh, the bug is relatively small, um, uh, but but still, uh, yeah, I'm I'm ambiguous about this. Uh, I can't be happy or 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 sad or, but I'm both at the same time. I don't know what to make of it I actually. Well, you should be sad. I'm sad crying out loud. I'm not crying out loud, but I'm sad. You know, I'm happy the service back one's there, but I'm yeah. sad this happened. And yeah. uh, the, the only thing, you know, uh, what I'm even more sad about is the fact that, you know, they released fairly quickly a, 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 a fix for this issue, and uh, which is great. The only thing is, um, and I have to admit, I haven't been checking the, the the release page recently, but the announcement for that KB article, which is kind of crucial to me, is buried under a, a load of, of comments, you know, halfway through the page. No one's got, ever going to read that. I mean... Um, I think for something like this, they should at least do a mention on the download page, like, hey, if you're downloading this um, service pack, please remind yourself of installing that fix right after you upgrade it, because you'll be running into issues, potentially. Uh, and that's, you know, kind of the, the, the last 10, 2%, you know. It's the, if, they, if they would do that, I'd be, you know, easily, I could easily forgive them. Uh, well, not easily. I could forgive them having the bug. Um, but now it seems like they're kind of trying to, you know, shove it a little bit away and hmm. yeah I, I get the feeling that there's some marketing in this because obviously there's you know yeah. all the good stuff you know all the features that uh, we've complained weren't in the original product uh and now uh, now in exchange 2013 and it's you know it's a big improvements from previous versions marketing obviously don't want this to be dragged down by something that uh, affects uh not all customers uh, who've got the product you know that it's you know, it's it's not even going to be fifty percent of Exchange twenty thirteen deployments that this affects. Uh, so, so, so perhaps they just don't want to drag it down, give it a bad name, unless people come across the bug. I mean, that's not good because, of course, that means someone's going to run the service pack. It's going to break, and then they're going to search for an answer and then find this KB. And that's not that that can be a pain if you've got to do a specific change request for this software to get it upgraded you're expecting it to work and there's going to be environments where they've got a test environment but perhaps uh, haven't installed things like these transport agents onto the the test servers so it's well, only the, going to affect them when it goes into production uh, yeah so, well the the situation uh when you already have a 2013 
Search Pack 1 installation, and then months later you uh, decide to install a disclaimer uh, application or something, and then it breaks down. Then you, the first thing that you're going to do is to blame the the, uh, third-party app, but it's still an issue with the Search Pack. And um, when you look into the uh, Knowledge Base article about this issue, um, there is a note uh, in the section resolution that the permanent fix uh, will be presented in cumulative update 5. So that will be the uh, successor to Suspect 1, which is technically cumulative update 4. Um, so that tells me two things, that um, when you want to install Suspect 1, you also always have to install this fix. Um, and uh, Suspect 1 won't be revoked and reissued with a version 2. So well, this is this is an important point, though, with the service yeah. and, and updates. People are only going to install Service Pack One for literally, you know, right. less than three months. Uh, after that point, they shouldn't be installing it uh, anew uh, if they can help it uh, because of the support. And uh, it, it well, gone are the days where, uh, like now, if you wanted to install Exchange Twenty Ten, you'd install Service Pack Three. Uh, service Pack One won't, shouldn't be installed in six months' time, really, should it? Uh, so it shouldn't end up being the the big problem that uh, you know it'll, it'll be something else in the the next cumulative update that uh, to worry about. Has it come that far that we're already anticipating issues with a, with an update? Well, that's it. Uh, there's a there's a quote, isn't there? Uh, who is it? Is it Tony Redmond or someone else that uh, that uh, mentioned it recently? Life is a flawed and imperfect existence where bugs happen. Amen. And, and this is the thing. Amen. If the software was perfect, there would never be uh, an, another update for, for bug fixes. And it's the same with everything. Uh, weren't, none of us are perfect. The fact that we have edit points on this very episode again and again, and we've already got several, uh, which I hope you haven't heard at home, um, proves that we're not perfect either. Uh, and and th- this has been tested. And MVPs, TAP participants have been testing Service Pack 1 over and over again. And, uh, you know, of the various builds, we were happy with what we saw. Uh, and we raised issues as we went along. So, so yeah, I, I hope it's relatively bug-free next time around. Um, but I don't think uh, this is as serious as revoking it and reissuing. No, no, that that's certain. And th- th- there are uh, some important fixes in Search Pack 1 which made me very happy. So um, all in all, I'm, I'm still, I am still have a positive uh, outlook on Search Pack 1. And on that note, yeah, I, I, think we should, I think we should move on. So we started positive and ended positive, even on that. Uh, so um, an example of some relatively trouble-free update roll-ups uh, for Exchange. Exchange 2010 Service Pack 3 Update Roll-Up 5 is out. Uh, Exchange 2007 Service Pack 3 Update Roll-Up 13 is out. And unless I'm going to be told otherwise, uh, no real problems reported. I I, I know some places where they're running them, and so far nothing major came up. Uh, Usual stuff after upgrading a CU, but that's uh, an RU. Um, but that's kind of you know expected. But no, look, that looks fine. And they're actually in the 2010 update. There are quite a lot of fixes in there, uh, quite important ones. So I'm glad it was there. Yeah. So yeah. So I think I think especially with the 2010 service uh, service pack three update rollups, they've been of pretty good quality of late and have have 
been there to fix stuff. And some bugs have taken maybe a couple of update roll-ups to fix things, uh, like there was an issue with the hybrid config wizard, and I think it took a couple of updates for them to fix anything. But it's, it seems relatively rare on those update roll-ups that anything gets broken now. So, yeah, good stuff. Uh, and mm-hmm. Those are out to download now. Um, I, I got an email uh, a, a few days ago uh, from uh, a nameless uh, person um, who we won't name uh, at, at all, and they also emailed a few of the other people in the group. They seem very keen. <laughs> a nameless person who we won't name. I, I, I'd like to think I have a way with words. <laughs> I clearly don't. <laughs> so this nameless person who won't be named, <laughs> he who shall not be named. Uh, so did, will this be an edit point or, the, no, or go for an it, example go for for, for not being perfect? Or I, think, like I, I, I think um, I think it uh, adds to the show <laughs> in a bad way. Um, so yeah, so someone emailed us and said uh, we we've had some problems with uh, public folder migrations recently. And uh, and they claim, and I can't find anything to back this up, they claim that the public folder limits documentation, which uh, we'll link to, uh, have changed recently, very, very quietly, and they're very upset about it. Now, until we know more, uh, don't want to really go into that, because it's not, it, you know, it's uh, unless we've got some evidence to back it up, we don't really want to beat Microsoft up about it. Um, because it, it could be completely, you know, unfounded. Uh, but if you have been involved with any migration pro- uh, projects and Microsoft told you the limits were a certain number and then suddenly they're, they're telling you that, the, the, that those limits have changed, uh, let us know and uh, we might talk about it in the next episode. Uh, and if that's a, a, a mech, uh, then we might even be able to quiz the product team about it directly. So I'm I'm doing a migration soon uh, from uh, uh, at least I think I'm I'm going to do that from 2007 public folders to 2013. So I'll uh, keep my eyes open. How many public folders have you got? I have no idea actually. <laughs> um, still have to do an inventory on that. Yeah. So uh, and uh, there's been quite a few log uh, logs. Uh, there's been quite a few. Uh, scripts released uh, recently on the Exchange Team blog, and we've talked about those in previous episodes as well. There's a new one, a get log file usage, uh, which is uh, intended to uh, allow you to try and get the sort of daily counts uh, on uh, Exchange Server database log files. Uh, so that's a new script out from Microsoft on the Exchange Team blog. Uh, I was actually surprised that that this didn't ex- exist any any sooner or, or earlier because uh, if you want to do uh, a stretch DAG for instance then you need this kind of information so it would be very helpful to have this yeah so it's, it's one of those things where you think yeah actually where has that been and, yeah and yeah here it is uh, <laughs> well so, I'm happy about it so yeah so the, the idea is that if you're trying to build uh, stuff to do with bandwidth calculations uh, or uh, to do with uh, sizing your next version of Exchange, this is going to help you understand the log generation, uh, i.e. you know, very, very high-level usage of your Exchange uh, databases, and uh, collect that data uh, in CSV format. Uh, so that's available to download now, and the blog post uh, on the Exchange Team blog tells you how you might use the output from it. Mahmood, who's not on the show today, uh, who's our uh, MVP for Exchange, uh, the expert for VMware, and uh, is it S-expert? 
that sounds uh, that it's probably not s expert um for some that would be expert. <laughs> yeah, <I know. laughs> <laughs> and didn't he just recently become become a Citrix Citrix expert as well? Yeah, all yes. sorts all sorts of things. Uh, he he he's almost the ultimate um, jack of all trades, master of everything kind of thing, isn't he? Uh, so Mahmoud Magdi has uh, uh, has been looking at uh, Azure multi-factor authentication with Exchange twenty thirteen service pack one, and he's blogged about how to do it on his AutoDiscover blog. Uh, so. Uh, that's quite interesting. Multi-factor authentication, two-factor authentication provided by Azure, and uh, he's uh, he's written up a blog post, basically setting up what you need to do to set it up from scratch, uh, and goes through. It's one of those good sort of articles that um, I, I always love to read, and it's going through everything. It's not just um, you know what are the the steps you need to do on Exchange, but from the beginning, what do you need to do? What do you need to do with the with DirSync, for example? What do you need to do in Azure? Uh, and then what you have to do in Exchange itself, all the bits you need to download and get it all sort of working. So uh, very, very good, in detailed, lots of screenshots, fantastic article. Well done on that, my mood. Yep, I agree. I enjoyed reading the article and, and you know, the thought that he, you know, no one put it together before him, like, hey, there's multi-factor authentication, can I do it with uh, Exchange? And just, you know, hack away and then try to make it work is, is, is pretty interesting. The only thing, and that's not a comment to Mahmoud, but a comment to the multi-factor authentication, I think it could be easier. You know, Microsoft can, has, sometimes they make easy things difficult, and if you take a look at all the steps that you have to go through to make this work, wow, really? Yeah, it, it's, it's kind of painful. Like, <laughs> yeah, it could be easier to move to Office three six five. Maybe, maybe that's the point. <laughs> yeah, things uh, that are hard are worth doing. <laughs> so yeah, so multi-factor authentication server needs to be installed. A user portal. Oh God, there's absolutely tons of steps to do it. SDK services. Ooh, XML config modules to install in IIS. Yeah, it's a there's no wizard to do this, that's for sure. Uh, so yeah, that must have taken him ages to set up. Uh, and and it's there as a guide for for you listeners to go and set up for yourself if you if you've got a spare week. Um, so yeah, good stuff. Uh, well but done, Mamoud. They definitely should do that, by the way, because the multi-factor authentication uh, in Windows Azure AD absolutely rocks. Um, so this totally, you know. Independent from the other thing, they they definitely should take a look at it because MFA in, in Windows Azure AD is, is pretty pretty cool. So um, so it's a given we think it takes about a week to set up on prem. How long do you reckon does it take to set up in Office three six five? It took me less than an hour to get everything up and running. Not bad. Yeah. Hmm. <laughs> um, so it's it's, wait, it's fairly easy. What should I do? What should I do? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, so, so yeah, Office three six five make making technology accessible to anyone. That is good stuff, and an hour to do. And uh, another good on premises thing. So Office three six five, so you can build your own stuff here. Exchange twenty thirteen service pack one now includes native support for Active Directory Federation services. Now that probably doesn't mean a lot to most people. 
um, because if you yeah. are using uh, WAP uh, web application proxy, then you could be doing this with uh, Exchange 2013 right now for Outlook Web App and EAC. Uh, but this is native claims-based authentication, which means that if you've got uh, you know a big exchange organization and it's sitting behind dedicated load balancers, multi-site, for example, then you don't necessarily want to have a web application proxy sitting in front of it all. Uh, you'd rather have uh, the... OWA servers, you know, exchange completely separate from ADFS. Uh, and this is what that allows you to do. So the ADFS lives as it is, uh, might fit in with your hybrid in, or, uh, installation, and then you can use proper claim-based authentication uh, with OWA and, of course, the Exchange Admin Center. And the guide on how to do that is on TechNet now. Um, but um, there's no Mahmood-style uh, full article on how to do it st start to finish. Uh, so I've not tried it yet. Um, it, it, could, it looks like it's re relatively straightforward if you've already got ADFS set up. It, it actually is. I've been playing around with it a little bit. Um, but, you know, um, I, I would have been more excited about this. Uh, I am. Don't get me wrong, but I would have been more excited if they would make <laughs> if they would make this available for uh, you know Mappy HTTP for Outlook Anywhere uh, to make that work with ADFS. That would be more awesome. Awesome. I mean, that would be yeah. cool. Uh, now they're just you know, it's not you know. I don't want to, you know, tell them they didn't do a good job or they didn't put a lot of effort into it because clearly they have, but they did it for OWA and ECP, which is half of the work. You know, people are also using Outlook and they're still doing that, and a lot of people are doing that. And now they need, you know, they can use ADFS for OWA and EAC, but they cannot do that for their Outlook clients. So what's the purpose? Um, I'm sure there are purposes in there, but you know, I'm, I'm missing that, you know, that other half. Yeah, well, so. I'm thinking like third-party applications or cloud or something. Because if you have the ADFS, right, uh, there might be third-party applications coming in. And mm -hmm. actually, let's think of a scenario where you put the... Semantic uh, your, you, you know, the, like... Uh, yeah, for example, you know, like CRM applications, right? I've got a good example of uh, one that plugs into uh, Exchange as well. So Semantic Enterprise Cloud, uh, their uh, online uh, vault, the login for that can use ADFS. So you might want to click through from OWA to Enterprise Vault. Or you can create your own administration panel yeah. for Exchange and use that. Uh, so it's got lots of applications there, uh, not just for hybrid organizations. Uh, but if you were to use it in hybrid, then you'd need to, it would need to be a 2013 only hybrid. So you couldn't use it for your hybrid serve with 2010 in the mix because then you get thrown back to a normal login prompt. Yeah. Uh, I'm thinking this is a first step and I'm sure it will come for Mappy or HTTP as well soon. Mm -hmm. Maybe. Yeah, well, I, as Michael I mean, said, I, I, that, that's my guess. I know nothing about roadmaps or anything like or that. Or EWS, maybe. Um, yeah, but I, I think the end goal is is to try and make everything common uh, to, to work on ADFS and to be able to use things like Windows Integrated Authentication through all those protocols, probably driven by Office 365. So uh, users don't need to save a password when they log into Outlook on Office 365. So all these under-the-hood changes, I reckon the end goal is, is as you say, to uh, allow all this kind of features to, to work, Circum. So, yeah, interesting times ahead. Yep. 
Uh, the, we've got a new DigiCert tool. So um, we've seen them in the past uh, to help us scan for uh, certificates or build certificate requests. And there's a new tool uh, called the Certificate Inspector by DigiCert. Uh, so uh, has anyone used this? Yeah, that's the one where it goes out and installs the agent and it, kind of, you know, it scans your network um, for machines and machines that have certs and gives you uh, information on, on, the, on the certs. Um, and will warn you, like, for, you know, um, um, expiration date and uh, ciphers and, and all kinds of things. So I actually ran in, uh, yeah, I, I don't know, is this bit, was, this, was this recent? Because I don't remember seeing it before, but I just happened to be downloading the uh, SSL tool and I'm like, what is this? But it's pretty cool. Yeah, I hadn't seen it before. Um, but generally, if I'm getting an SSL cert, I just go get it and I'm gone. Uh, I don't stick around for the tools. Uh, so I've not played with it yet, um, but I, I'm going to give it a go. Uh, and so that's you need a, a DigiCert account to use it, um, but do you need to actually buy DigiCert certificates? I don't think so. No, I, uh, no, no. You, you can have, you have a, sign up for free. Yeah, it's a registered account. Yeah. Cool. Uh, so yeah, we'll put the link up uh, to that uh, along with the uh, along with the other stuff on the show today. Uh, so we've had the service packs for Exchange server uh 2013 uh there's also the office web app server 2013 service pack one. Oh joy uh, and that that's not, <laughs> so that's not a, as i understand it, that's not a slipstreamed installer then you've got to install the base and then install this on top uh which is a, a bit of a, a pain for for fresh installs and uh, upgrades uh, alike, um, but uh, we, we had a, a few posts onto our dis- we have a, a distribution list uh, for the UC architects, and I think someone was trying to install it uh, fresh as a service pack one. Uh, had some issues needed to install. Yeah, I had I had an issue on mine. I, I had to I tried to install it, you know, from a clean server, and it was like, no, you need to. There's no such product, so I, I installed. RTM and then it installed over fine, so I don't know. But I, I did another build with using Pat's script and it downloaded it on a clean machine and installed it. So I, I don't know what you know his method, how it okay. might be different than so. Okay, so it could just be you. <laughs> yeah, right. Or or just probably just save yourself time and just use Pat's tool anyway. Yeah, <laughs> That's okay. the best answer. <laughs> okay, so we want to link to Pat's tool as well. So link. To but uh, when you when you're upgrading, do you still need to remove the existing web farm? And upgrade and add it back. I'd imagine you would. I've not. Yeah, I've, I've not I think so. I think so. Yeah, uh, it it, it oh, has been nice. like that with all the intermediate updates for right. Office Web App Server that you have to you know get it get done with it and then build a new one, uh, which is pretty straightforward because there isn't uh, that much uh, work uh, that you know involved with that. However, I, I'm wondering, did, did anyone already install the new service pack one? Because I think it was Pat who talked about uh, the Office Web Apps that recently, you know, by default, if you install the Office Web App Server, it accepts requests from pretty much any domain, any any external uh, server. So uh, if you published your Office Web App Server uh, blank onto the internet, anyone could make a request to your Office Web App Server and get service. Yeah, so you can um, you can feed it a URL and then it will go yeah. retrieve that. Uh, and that's a feature of it. So, well, okay, my thought was, was, was by design. I didn't. I, I didn't. I thought that was by design. 
I, I thought yeah, it was it well. Actually, that they documented, and there is you know it's easy. You you have to create a new Office web app host, and then just have an allow list for the domains that are allowed to use it. Yeah. But is it really a, a feature? As in, you definitely don't want to forget this, or was it something they forgot? And by they, I mean Microsoft, and they kind of fixed it now. Anyone knows that? I think it's part of that sort of secure by default uh, thing that they were doing a few years ago. Well, that's not very secure if you leave it open to anyone. <laughs> I, I'm kidding. I, but, <laughs> yeah. Anyway, okay. I, I, I suppose, yeah. I, I suppose, yeah. So that, that's what I want to watch. So. Yeah, I guess there's a lot of Office web observers out there that's open. We, we should just use to uh, bounce we, we your. We encourage link. someone to write a talk to scan for them. Did you say they could do that? <laughs> they, they, they do those talks. Um, so, moving on uh, swiftly, as uh, a new feature, um, or is it a new feature? It's one I hadn't seen before, and uh, that uh, we we had about the other day, and that is you can now configure static IP addresses for virtual machines uh, in Windows as well. So I, I didn't think you could do this uh, the last time I looked, which was probably about a month ago. Uh, so now, now that that's arguably a great feature. It is awesome. Finally, they're catching up with everyone else. <laughs> Well, yeah, that was a pretty big problem before, right? If you shut the machine yeah. down, you lose the IP. But they've argued, they've argued for a long time that it's not a problem. It was a problem. Let's face it. Um, well, maybe not for their design ideas, and and it, it, you know, Azure was great for what it was intended. I mean, if you had a scale-up web server farm and you needed to deploy yeah. 20 new web servers in a, f a few seconds, awesome. But if you wanted to build static uh, servers uh, in, in Azure, sort of static virtual machines, a domain controller, uh, uh, even an exchange server, it's not supported, I know, but for testing that, you know, dynamic IP address stuff, uh, not being able to set static IP addresses was just a pain in the butt. But, in but, but for domain controllers, it's certainly been supported for a long time. And, uh, and, of course, building uh, ADFS boxes in Azure as well. Uh, and if you were building a couple of, well, uh, ADFS proxies and then the ADFS servers, then the type of approach where you might want to set uh, host files and stuff like that, they would have been a right pain to, to configure if you were trying to do it within the same subnet. Uh, so I think yep. I think this is very very good, uh, especially for things like domain controllers. And uh, we we had a bit of back and forth on the mailing list earlier about this. Um, but I, I I've um, got my home network permanently connected to two Azure networks, one uh, in Europe and one in the US. And I had played around with having domain controllers in there, um, but uh, it was just a lot of hassle. Um, and now I can have static IP addresses, I'm more interested in doing so because I would like them to have backup DNS servers in uh, in, in the cloud network in Azure uh, so that if the VPN goes down, they can continue to function and the clients that are in there can continue to function without having to look for on-premises AD for DNS. So I think this is great. Uh, so I'm, I'm looking forward to reconfiguring uh, DCs uh, in Azure for one and uh, to, someone said that it could be useful for running, at some point, the edge role in the cloud. Uh, yeah, it, yeah, that wasn't me, but it was one, just a one-off thought. Yeah, once it's supported, I suppose. Yeah, I, I can imagine Microsoft will say, why would you want to do that if you're going to move it to the cloud? Well, yeah, well, well, it, it, it depends on whether you want to have control over your whole mail flow and not want to have it in uh, via a cloud service or something like that. Yeah, 
Yeah. I mean, the, the only downside to that, I think, is I have heard that uh, some of the IP ranges in Azor can get uh, on the block lists for email. Uh, All right. Because, of course, it, you might have a static IP uh, in your virtual network, but you might not end up with the same external IP again, perhaps. Uh, so that that's one to watch. Uh, so uh, I know that a few people who've set up test labs in Azor, because, of course, you can use it for testing. You're not going to get support on it, uh, have found that when they've tried to send email out, then even to Office 365 itself, those IP address ranges have been blocked. Uh, so, yeah, so you could put your edge in Azor at some point, I suppose, because uh, there is going to be a point that Exchange is going to be supported in Azor, even if it is just to ke- uh, get those... Sounds like an insult. <laughs> Why don't you stick your edge in it, Zuer? There's going to be a point when it's supported, I think. Uh, it, well, at, at least the uh, 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 file witness. Well, yeah, they've been <laughs> for a long time, but uh, as I understand it, they're waiting on a point uh, that an Azure network can be connected to two VPN links. Because uh, at yep. the moment it's just one, so until that happens, uh, then the file share witness. But uh, the, there are organisations that Microsoft are obviously selling them a lot of compute space uh, in Azure uh, to, to move machines there. And Exchange for some organisations might be saying that they want to move to the cloud. Uh, Amazon have been touting that as an option for quite a while, and of course uh, most of the big hosters. Uh, have offerings where they will allow you to run uh, dedicated virtual machines for exchange in, in their cloud. Uh, so Azure is almost the, the one that's the odd one out, I think. Well, yeah, you know, from Microsoft's point of view, but shall, we should not forget that even though uh, Amazon offers uh, support for exchange, it isn't supported by Microsoft. So. Oh, yeah, true, true. Uh, and did, I think uh, when we were, in, not in, last in Vegas, but uh, the time before in September, uh, mm-hmm. we asked uh, Jeff directly about that, and uh, it sounds like some interesting conversations uh, were going on and may continue to go on about that. But they they can't say no forever to these kind of things. Uh, and, and I think there's going to be a point when customers do want that. Because they could say, well, go to Office 365. But there's there's a middle ground between having it uh, as a multi-tenant service uh, or as a dedicated service or in the public cloud but under your control. And uh, I think to, you know, unless they've completely scrapped the cloud on your terms, uh, then it's something that I'd like to see uh, at some point in the future. Moving on to some Office 365 topics. Um, there's a, a new blog post from the ever-popular Brian Reed. Uh, so he's a fellow UK Exchange MVP, uh, and he's been on the show before uh, because he was one of the trainers for the MCM program for a long time. So he's yes, multi- he was. Yeah, so multiple MCM, MCSM for 2013, and, of course, you know, a trainer and a UK-based consultant. And uh, he's, he's written uh, a while ago about how you can use MX-based smart host routing uh, for on-premises exchange, uh, and uh, now he's uh, just published a blog post uh, about how to do the same in Office 365. Now, the the use case for that is if you've got an Office 365 tenant and you've perhaps got two sites, so you might have a site in the US and a site in Europe, and most of your users are in Europe, um, and your backup uh, inbound MX uh, 
before you moved to Office 365 was in the US. It might be that now you're in Office 365, you want either Exchange Online Protection or Office 365 to route primarily into your European data center. But in the case that uh, that link is down, then it will route to uh, your US-based data center. Now, if you just set up a DNS record that round robin between both, then it might mean that half your traffic is going from Europe to the US and then back over your internal WAN links. Um, but the technique that uh, Brian's written about here means that you can use Exchange Online Protection Office 365 to route to on-premises primarily through uh, your your primary site and then use secondary or tertiary sites. And uh, and it build, it builds upon using MX-based routing. And that's basically turning a smart host name into an MX record. So it's quite simple to do. Uh, and you'll see it up in his blog. Uh, and that's there to, to download yeah, now. Yeah, cool. I haven't looked at it. Yeah, so I, I think it's one of those things where it's not commonly used. But once you know about that technique, keep it in the back of your mind. Because you might, especially if you're a consultant, you might get asked about it by a customer. And, of course, once you know that that's a, a, a valid, supported solution, it's one you can use. Good info. It is, yes. As SAML2 Federation with Office 365. So has anyone here used Shibboleth or, or any of its equivalents? No. By the sound I heard of crickets. And you probably, yeah, you probably don't want to uh, for <laughs> most cases. Uh, but for a few years, Microsoft have had customers, uh, particularly universities, that have really been overly keen on using open source technologies for uh, SAML Federation. Uh, ra rather than use ADFS, they want to use Shibboleth for everything. For, and uh, uh, having worked at university myself, I, I know you know they can be very passionate about using that. And although uh, it, it, I think it's you know because they all do it, they all feel like they have to do it because they won't get support from partner institutions if they do it a different way. So some of these uh, universities have, have demanded uh, support uh, for for using things like Shibboleth with Office 365 rather than having to set up dedicated ADFS servers. And I think Microsoft have been supporting them for quite a while uh, as they do that. And there's a few case studies and uh, on Microsoft's site dating back to sort of the early Office 365 days. But now it's officially supported uh, for Federation. But it does have some big caveats, which I think make it next to useless. Uh, and that's really the active class. Like Outlook cannot be used uh, with the with the, the third-party SAML federation. Uh, but at a later date in the future, probably, I think it said around about the time that they introduced some of these additional multi-factor authentication features, you will be able to do use SAML2 federation for everything, which could open the door to organizations having simple Linux virtual machines that uh, deal with all the Office 365 Federation stuff and potentially save customers uh, some additional Windows licenses. All right, so I'm going I'm to move on to the, the Link uh, conference uh, stuff now and uh, we're going to round out the show with Link stuff because uh, all the Office 365 stuff sounded so interesting <laughs> from the response I got anyway. <laughs> <laughs> Oh dear, I, I have not listened to the Office 365 podcast, um, Office 365 FM, but uh, they, maybe they love it more than we do. <laughs> uh, I, I love the Office 365 stuff, but sorry, yeah, it can be a bit... Uh, Link Conference 2014, so that's bringing back some good memories for you guys. Uh, so did you did you see a lot of sessions while you were out there? Oh yeah, well, not as many as I wanted to, but, but uh, we talked to... <laughs> On the podcast, but that you know, hopefully in the next year they'll extend a little bit 
because uh, there was just so much good stuff. It was just impossible to, to get into it all, you know. Yeah. Yeah. Some of the sessions were, you know, fully booked uh, half an hour or even 50 minutes before they started. So that's really? how I missed it. Yeah. yeah. I, yeah, I had seen that. Yeah, I missed Paul Robichaud's uh, second session. Uh, I, I, you know, two minutes before the session started, I walked up to the door and it said, hey, room's full. You're not allowed to enter. <laughs> I was like, oh, really? really? I, yeah. Or yeah well, I learned my lesson last year try to get try to get there, you know, as soon as I could because, yeah, I didn't want to get, you know, uh, locked out. So, uh, so as attendees to the conference, you get access to all of these sessions already. Um, but for those of us that didn't uh, get to go, uh, they've released some sessions on YouTube, uh, and there's a YouTube playlist uh, available now uh, that lets you watch some of those sessions uh, for free. Uh, we'll put the link up to that, uh, and you can experience some of the some of the technical sessions. Uh, and uh, of course, if you're at Mech, then I think they've got a replay of uh, the after hours sessions too. Um, and again, we'll remind you about uh, that at the end of the show. Uh, what else have we got? The link room system. So there's, this is a public service announcement. If you've got a link room system, then you need to update to version 15.08 before the 9th of March. Which is too late. <laughs> you better do it today because that's when yeah. we're recording. Or else so tomorrow, so do it now. Now, quick. <laughs> Get, go. Do Stop last... listening to this podcast and do it now. <laughs> yeah, do it last week. Uh, so, so, yeah. Why? What happens yeah. if you don't? I don't know. Yeah, there actually is a KB article about this, and um, the thing is, um, the link room system doesn't uh, support um, they like time saving, and uh, it, it oh. means uh, the link client won't log on because the the time is wrong. Oh, so you actually right. need to go into your link room system and, and change the, the clock manually. So tomorrow Worst morning, case. there's going to be a few people. With yeah, room every, don't yeah every big meetings at 8 o'clock. Morning, mo- so yeah, no. Monday morning <laughs> staff meeting, they're going to fire up the LRS and they're going to be nada. Yep. <laughs> oh, <laughs> so no. What I, re- what I retain from this, this issue is, do I need to set my clock tonight? Uh, no, that, I at the time you hear this podcast, probably. I don't <laughs> <know>. <laughs> yeah, if you, you're going to be late to a lot of stuff if you don't change it by the time this gets uh, done to iTunes. <laughs> so th- this is just US people, yeah? Yeah, yeah, that was a good question. I was going to ask you guys. So you guys don't, you guys don't have any of this crazy daylight savings crap. Yeah, we, we, we do that yeah. in Norway. Yeah, but it's not happened yet. It happens at different times. Uh, oh. Kind of silly. <laughs> I, I say that, though. Shouldn't it be global? <laughs> no, well, you you almost wouldn't know these days. It's it's where the sun is and what time the, the sunset is. And, uh, and it's political as well. So in the UK, I think there was politics around where the farmers should be able to get up early or children should die from getting run over. <laughs> and I think... Was it the farmers one? Uh, <laughs> I can't remember, but it's 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 kind of political. But you almost wouldn't know because I don't have a watch. I you know I have a smartphone, I have computers, and they all sort of do it for me. So I wouldn't even know if the date changed uh, anymore because it's all automatic. Well, we changed yesterday, and and I'm I'm happy because it's nice and it's it's uh four thirty here uh, central, and it's light out. <laughs> Normally, it'd be getting dark right now. <laughs> So I think I'd yeah, and, uh, and probably you will notice uh, if you find a clock that doesn't update, and uh, you rely on that, then everything <laughs> goes wrong. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So so yeah, and that might that'll be the one in your link uh, meeting room, ready yep. for your Monday morning That's meeting it. that you were going to show off your link room system to everybody and show how great it was. The CEO's there, and it doesn't work, and you have no idea why. 
But yeah, honestly, so we'll, we'll put a KB article up as well. Oh, no. So we should tweet this just in case tonight. Honestly, honestly you know, when you come to think of it, um, no wonder there are issues with daylight saving times because you just you just said, guys, that you switched over yesterday. Um, and I looked it up, and we're in, in Europe, we're switching over on March 30th, which is in three weeks. So now we have, instead of, you know... Uh, Compared to Central Euro- European time against the um, Pacific Daylight Time, normally is nine hours, but now for the coming three weeks, it's only an eight-hour difference, and then we move back to a nine-hour difference. It's kind of you know confusing. Uh, Foreigners are strange. <laughs> yeah, that's what we think of yeah, you guys you as well. <laughs> <laughs> so no wonder that someone at Microsoft got confused and you know introduced <laughs> into the link room system. Yeah, yeah who would know the time would change? Uh, <laughs> oh yeah, it happens every year. <laughs> yeah. But actually, I think this is um, for computers or link room systems. That's not domain joint. Right. So non-domain yeah. joint link room systems. So yeah, it's higher there. So you might be alright there. So do, so I I've not set up a link room system. Do you usually domain join them or not? Actually, it's uh, I think it's a good practice to uh, join them to the domain. Uh, as long as you remember to remove uh, group policies that may affect um, logouts and logins and scripts yeah, and stuff like that. Okay, cool. So, yeah, that might be a wake-up call to people who didn't domain join them. Do that next time. Uh, we've got a minor update, version 1.01, to the Link 2013 Call Pickup Group Manager tool from... Uh, so, in Link Cumulative Update 1, Microsoft added the new Call Pickup Group feature... And it has been a classic voice feature since the early days of PBXs. Um, so there's a beta for a, another new uh, product, Link Call Accounting uh, for User or Departmental Billing. Uh, and that's up by Link Geek New Zealand. Uh, so uh, that's a, a beta product on the Microsoft Link and Other Stuff blog by Andrew Morpeth. So... Uh, so you might want to have a, a look at that. Um, yeah. so and that's actually a, a script for uh, going through the call detail records. And uh, it will um, find the users that have dialed, how long they dialed for, and uh, list out their number, their department, and uh, their um, um, your company name from Active Directory. Yeah. And uh, I think it's uh, quite a... A promising tool. It's uh, still in beta, and um, because you now need to use third-party tools or have your SIP trunk provider uh, do this for you. So if you want to do internal billing, this uh, could be an awesome uh, script to do it. Cool. Yeah, actually, it, you know, timely for me to actually had somebody actually um, ask me about it. I'm like, I uh, don't know, and <laughs> so it's the timing perfect for me. Yes, yeah, and is. also Microsoft have published a white paper on um, SIP uh, headers that's uh, there for billing, but that but that's for billing from the um, telcos and not not locally. So this this could be a good uh, starting point. Yeah, so apparently the current version will process about fifteen thousand call records in fifteen minutes. So. Uh, so yeah, that might give you an idea of how often you might want to run it as well. Uh, so yeah, yeah, maybe nightly or something. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so uh, another bug fixes out there, and uh, apparently Office 2013 Service Pack One uh, fixes an annoying UI suppression mode bug in Link, which is good news for Link developers. I so hear, but not the rest of us. 
Um, I didn't hear any cheers from Link guys, so uh, you can tell that I knew all about. Probably because we're not developers. Yeah. <laughs> so yes, yeah, so, uh, we, we've not got a modality on the show this week. Usually, it's everyone's modality uh, that, that's to do with Link, and of course, they've got a bunch of developers doing some cool stuff. One of our last items on the show today, using Link Server's CS client policy entry for inbound SNOM setting provisioning for IP phones. Wow, that's a bit of a, a mouthful. That's over on uh, Matt Landis's Windows PBX and UC report. So he's written a, a blog post about uh, it, and it's one of those things that by the time we uh, we, we publish our podcast uh, may well have been updated. Um, but his question is, you know, what if you could push SNOM-specific settings like ringertone, buttons, and a myriad of other settings via Link Server itself? Well, uh, now... SNOM uses the native link server CS client policy entry, then this is now possible. So what uh, what Matt is, is writing about is, is how to do that in that blog post and how to set that up in your environment. Uh, pretty much as he goes through and, and learns about it and what it can do as well. So uh, if you're using SNOM, that's, that certainly sounds very interesting. Stoller, you're saying you're a bit of a SNOM expert. Um, not really, uh, but um, this is quite good because SNOM is... Um, optimized for a link device uh, yeah. and um, uh, it, the more they can use from from the link server the better so uh, I think they are working in the, in the right direction here so, t- so typically what what are other en- other vendors doing and uh, is this better or is well, this ca- more catching up well you have um, a polycom that, that is doing the better together um, the phones yeah, BX series, uh, which also don't have a full feature like the Link Phone Edition from HP Astra, uh, and um, so they do some of the features, but some of them, like the presence uh, light and, and stuff like that, won't show up. Uh, yeah. But they are working with uh, things like that and how to configure them and and what you can do more from from the Link in order to manage those devices as well. So, um, yeah, it's uh, evolving. Yeah, BTO is pretty cool. I uh, got the VBX a couple, about a month ago, and it's a pretty neat little tool. It's been pretty sound for me. And uh, our penultimate item, and uh, Ian Smith, uh, so uh, another modality employee uh, creeping up, and he's been on the show before as well as a guest, um, has done a video config guide uh, for masking information from Link 2013 monitoring reports. Uh, that sounds very interesting. Yeah, I, I, uh, I looked at the, at the video um, he posted. It's a sort of a, like a 12-minute uh, YouTube of kind of how to do it and stuff. And, you know, it kind of dovetails with, um, with Mac and, and um, some of the sessions. Um, Shane Hoey, um, uh, who's a Link MVP now, um, and uh, Dave Tucker, who owns um, Event Zero, um, did a session at, at, uh, at Link on, on you know, monitoring analytics, and, and they really went into, you know, what you can really get out of the database schema and the you know, database content. So, you know, Ian's article kind of goes along those lines about it's, you know, kind of amazing you know, what kind of data is in there and, you know, the native monitoring reports, you, you may or may not see some of those rendered, but that data is still in there. And if you know how to, you know, get it out and render, and render it, um, there's a lot of stuff that you can dig up in there. And then you, know, you start talking about, you know, building relationship kind of maps on who's talking to who and at what times. And you can start getting into what numbers they're calling, that kind of thing. Gives you kind of a picture of like what people are doing. You know? <laughs> people don't realize that, you know, that that uh, does that kind of analytics, you know, can happen. So it's interesting a way to, you know, to, that he kind of presented a way to 
block some of that stuff out from being, you know, presented to people who don't need to see that kind of stuff. Cool. Yeah, which so kind of to pick into this topic, um, and, and maybe still not a few moments, um, I see uh, a clear trend to, you know, kind of data mining in, in Link. There was, you know, quite a lot of talk about it at Link Conference, you know, how to get specific data out of Link or, you know, what monitoring and, and reporting solutions are there to give you more value of, of, of knowing what's happening in Link. And, and I, I kind of, you know, foresee the same thing as, as, as a huge potential for exchange because, you know, if you take a look at it, um, the data that is in a mailbox, and I mean, you know, the not the the actual intellectual property like you know whatever a company owns, but the the things that you can learn from mail traffic from people mailing each other and and, and stuff like that. It's very interesting to see you know what the kind of reports are that you can get out of that. Um, same, just you know, like like with Link, um, if you can if you can see what what. You know, valuable data is there to make business decisions from. It's it's pretty interesting. Well, that kind of goes along with the same thing with that with that with that session uh, at Mac. There, uh, was it uh, um, Network World was it uh, was in the uh, in the audience, and they wrote an article like you know sort of you know uh, saying like well you know Link is you know got NSA like you know data kind of uh, capabilities, and and we were, one of the jokes we were saying on Twitter was you know um, um, for how many years now has your mail admin been able to basically completely without auditing of any kind, read all your all your company's mail all day long, you know. It's like there's no big revelation that if you don't have people in your organization that you don't trust that uh, you're going to have problems, right? So, uh, it, yeah, mail is one of those things that people take for granted, like how much control your change admins do really have <laughs> in your environment, you know. Mm-hmm. Absolutely, absolutely. And I, I think it's it's both a opportunity and a challenge um, for both Exchange and Link. And, and I look forward to some of the solutions, you know, coming in the, in the next few months and years. Um, because I, I see, you know, typically it's all about, you know, how to better administer things. But I'd, I'd very much, you know, look forward to a tool which gets me more value out of the data in in, in exchange, more reporting. So. Well, uh, funny you say that. I I have been monitoring uh, some of the product team job adverts over the last few months. Um, one interesting one that I did see um, was that they were advertising for big data specialists to work on exchange. Interesting. Yeah. So, yeah, well, that doesn't surprise me at all. Uh, I, I, I'd, I'd be very interested into, you know, data harvesting, whatever is in exchange. Yeah. Um, and, you know, who better than the exchange team would be able to do that because they have access to the database, you know, low level. So they can do things well, yeah. more easily than other and, people can. And the kind of relationships, I mean, we... We we haven't mentioned uh, the Project Oslo stuff uh, in this episode, really, uh, which perhaps we we should have done. But uh, but that sort of uh, benefit to the end users as well of that kind of data is starting to come through because uh, the the kind of relationships that are built up in email uh, are often not there in other products like Yammer and so on. Uh, whereas people do the real communication through email, link, phone, and other products like that. And get, getting a handle on that kind of data, I, I think it, it's going to be very powerful, uh, more interesting than, than what you see in LinkedIn. Absolutely, absolutely. Our final item for the show today, uh, we're talking about a blog post by uh, John A. Cook, uh, who, John, you, exactly. you, you, 
<laughs> you you don't blog as much as um, as much as some people, um, or you do, but uh, not these kind of. I'm trying. <laughs> I'm trying. I swear, I'm trying. <laughs> well, yeah, and you should because it's a it's a fantastic blog post, and it even made me laugh halfway through. Uh, so yeah, that's the point. I, I, again, I, you know, I, I know I ramble on on these, but I I do want to try to have a sense of humor on some of these. Because... <laughs> I do. Yeah, it's, it's good. I, I like your writing style. No CRL for you. <laughs> Yeah, well, somebody came across. I was doing a, a small Greenfield uh, uh, 2013 deployment, and everything was going well, you know. And I published a, a OWASP server, and uh, was getting this, um, um, you know, from from the share session um, for PowerPoint, getting a, you know, unable to verify the certificate. I'm like, uh, okay, so, and I knew I had the 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 uh, it was non-domain joined machine, and I know I had the root on machine, so I was like, you know, confused. So I did doing some digging, and I, I found an article from, uh, I think, Microsoft, um, that um, um, if you don't have the, if you, if, if because you're not domain joined and, and HTTP is not, uh, the provider is not added to the uh, certificate revocation list, um, that, you know, when when it goes to check the validity of that root cert, it can't get there because you're not, you know, you, you, you can't do the LDAP call. So, I, you know, typically that, I, 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 I've run into that problem before where, you know, you add this curl and re-download and you're good to go. Um, you had the HTTP provider, but in my case, I did that and it still didn't work. So I did a more digging, and what it ended up being was uh, they had I don't know if they just decided to you know uh, on their on their uh, the uh, cert uh, cert provisioning website on the CA if they try to harden it in terms of security or whatever, but they had a require SSL checked. So you know the client's trying to do HTTP, but but the server's only listening for HTTPS, and that ultimately was the the issue. So yeah, like I said, we put a link to the blog, and it's uh, pretty pretty straightforward. If you run into that, could be your could be your friend. <laughs> right? And yes, and keep blogging because that that's a, a good article, and there's nothing better than seeing Hoff on my screen. That's right. <laughs> I was cracking up when I was doing the screenshots. Like, well, I gotta <laughs> try to get some cool screenshots here in a PowerPoint deck, right? And Shai, I was gonna add yours, but yours was like from from the conference was so big that I'm like, why is it taking so long to upload? I'm like, oh my god, it's a two hundred meg. That's so true. I find smaller Because <laughs> <laughs> I was going to push Dolly's in there, and I'm like, oh, my God, it's huge. Yeah, I was going to have them upload a smaller one, but they didn't. <laughs> I, hope, I hope that doesn't get edited out of context. So, <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, good stuff. Keep blogging, John. <laughs> uh, well, I, I like it very much. Actually read it. <laughs> yes. Um, well, on that happy note, uh, before I thank uh, the guest today, I want to remind you that uh, we've got a live recording at Mech, uh, so join us there. Uh, so hopefully you should be able to have a look and add us to your schedule. We're in a breakout session. And, of course, uh, the eNow slash UC Architects party. Uh, get to www.schedulemymaintenance.com and, of course, register with our promo code uh, UC Architects, if you can remember that. Um, thanks then guys uh, thanks Dave thank you John thank you Michael thank you Michelle thank you Sirkan and thank you Starley for joining me today and uh, I'm probably going to regret uh, saying how layer 4 load balancing uh, was the best uh, as I do our sponsor uh, message again uh, Camp Technologies is the number one price and performance load balancer for Microsoft workloads and they're a gold certified Microsoft partner in both messaging and communications Kemp's load balancers and ADCs come with configuration templates for link and exchange Kemp's 
virtual load balancers are the most powerful on the market, and they have all the same features as their hardware load balancers. For more information and to download a free trial today, go to www.kemptechnologies.com. And we want to remind you that the UC Architects are online. Visit our website today at www.theucarchitects.com or on Twitter at the UC Architects or find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash the UC Architects or search for us on LinkedIn. Podcast episodes are as always available in the iTunes store and in your favourite RSS reader. And of course, see our website for links to everything that we've talked about on the show today. We'll see you back soon for the next episode. Thanks for listening.